thankful for that this morning. Amen. It's good news. It's good news to the hearer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this morning to be able to proclaim this, to be able to remember this together, that your grace is more than enough to save us and walk alongside us. You want a relationship with us so that we might be different. We are so thankful for that. We pray that you'd help us today to remember that. Remember that this week as we go. We know it's what gives us power and boldness because of what your son has done on that cross for us, and we're thankful for that today. We pray that as uh, your word is proclaimed today, that we would be changed as a result because we know your word has changing power. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is always great to be with you and to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to take them out and invite you to find the 21st chapter of Luke in verse 25. That's where we're going to be starting our time uh, together this morning. And as you turn there, I wanted to just give a quick update. Last Sunday, uh, Pastor Justin had informed us that um, our brothers and sisters at Morning Star, uh, not Morning Star, Church on the Hill, excuse me, uh, had experienced uh, a lot of vandalism. Someone had broken into their church and smashed up all of their uh, electronics and all these different things. And that was the word that we had received, and we prayed for them in our services. And uh, this week, uh, Pastor Bruce over at Church on the Hill called Pastor Justin and said, thank you for your prayers. Uh, they were appreciated. The, the damage wasn't as bad as originally thought. They were able to put a lot of it back together. Um, the psychological damage, he said, was pretty uh, real. Uh, but they've been able to uh, continue their classes. They have a school there and graduation, and uh, God really went before uh, them in that. And so I just wanted to give that report because our God answers prayer. Amen? Amen. Uh, this is the portion of our morning where we turn our focus to God's Word, where we are going to now listen carefully and seek understanding of what He has for us in the Scriptures because we believe that they contain life. We believe that God's Word gives us under, uh, understanding to, to make decisions and tells us about who we are in relationship with God. We're continuing our series called The End is Near, and, and we've been looking at a section in the, in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples. Jesus had made a statement about something that was going to happen in the future, and that keyed the disciples, his followers, to ask him a question, and they asked him for some signs. How are we going to know when these things that you're talking about are going to happen? What can we be looking for to be able to tell uh, that this is actually what you predicted and not somebody else coming around and just saying, hey, look, I think this is happening because false prophecy was going to be something that was going to happen as well that he had warned them about. So Jesus starts teaching them not only about answering their questions, but he's going to answer some questions about the end times. And, and this morning, uh, we want to just really quickly review some keys that we have been uh, setting out before us as we enter into a study of prophetic prophetic literature. Every time we come across a passage in Scripture where the Scriptures are pointing to something in the future, there are some things, some tools that we want to remember in order to be able to understand accurately what God's Word is saying. The first is this, literal is best. Uh, well, we said it's important not when we read prophetic literature to look for something and try to find the metaphorical or allegorical application of what is being said. Uh, Pastor Justin has said, if the plain sense makes sense, then leave it that we can read it and believe that's actually going to happen. The second thing we've said we want to be able to do when we set out to read prophetic literature is that prophecy has a near and far perspective. 
oftentimes the object within the prophetical work, whatever is being talked about, can have importance in multiple eras. It just doesn't have to be right then and there or just all at one time, but it, it can be something that happens in multiple eras. And so we need to ask the question, when we read something that is being prophesied, something that's going to happen in the future, we need to ask the question, what era does this take place? Or what area, eras, plural, does this take place? And we've used these boxes to help us. And, and we see here on the screen, we have a timeline. I'm going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. But the third thing that we've seen is that Jesus taught us how to do this. Uh, there are parts in even Gospels, Luke account, where Jesus um, looks back at an Old Testament prophecy and he walks his disciples and followers through how to understand both the near and far perspective of that passage. So I'd like to start our time this morning by reading God's word and asking him to help us understand what he is talking about. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. Would you please stand if you are able in honor of God's word, and we will read this passage together. Luke writes this in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations, and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, Men feigning from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift it up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Do you believe that's true? Amen. It is. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us understanding of what he wants us to take away from this passage. God, we just come to you now, and we're thankful for the opportunity to look into your word. We're thankful you for the Holy Spirit, which you have given believers to be able to understand these spiritual things, God. And God, I just pray that as we continue to look at the future and, and we look at what's going to happen when you put an end to this creation and you begin your eternal reign, you set up your kingdom forever, God, that we would not be fearful, but that we'd be excited for those days. Give us understanding, soften our hearts to respond, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. So we have included a timeline here in your notes this week because if you're like me, I'm a visual learner. I like to see things kind of laid out. And, and one of the things that we've talked about is when you're studying prophetic literature, it's important that we don't just cram all these events into one event, try to answer all the things that are going to happen at one time. If, if it makes sense, then we leave it there. But if it doesn't, what era does it fit in? And so you'll notice that as we've been working through what Luke is talking about, what Luke records Jesus saying, we understand that Luke is giving us a, a part of this timeline, but it's not a complete timeline. We read scripture. There are multiple places throughout the scriptures where prophecy is, is given, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, all pointing towards this glorious moment. The most important moment that is ever going to happen is the moment when he returns a second time and sets up his kingdom. And so we look at Luke, and he's been giving us some important things. They're all part of the timeline, but what we've set out from the beginning is we're going to stick to what Luke is saying, and we're not going to try to unpack everything that is in the prophetic literature as we walk through that. But what we have seen is that it's important to notice that as we read prophetic literature, we need to pay attention to the grammar, because the use of verbs and pronouns will help us understand the near and far perspective of what he is saying. So in verse 6, we saw that Jesus predicted that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. And so the disciples asked, when will these things happen? 
And so in verses 8 through 11, Jesus starts to begin to give those signs. And you'll notice on your timeline, this is the time of growing disturbances. Uh, the time where these things are going to happen, there's going to be famine. And, and we've had these boxes up here, and Pastor Justin has used these boxes to help us understand what's going on. And so we had our first week, we talked about um, some of the things that are going to be happening. Actually, these are a little bit out of order. This is not a card trick or anything like that, I promise you. Um, but these awesome pictures that we've had by one of our high schoolers uh, that, that really are not, again, to unpack everything prophetically, but help just kind of take our minds to what Jesus is talking about in each of these sections in Luke chapter 21. But we talked about that there was going to be a growing disturbances um, in the future. There was going to be this time where there were going to be uh, famine. We had, he had a box of gluten-free JoJo's in here because he said if it's gluten-free, it's not worth eating. Uh, there's going to be... Uh, all kinds of, you know, things that are going to happen, things that are going to rock the world, asteroids, fear that's going to happen, eruptions around the earth. And, and then last week, we, we looked at this second picture that, that depicted this, um, no, I know what happened. The pictures are right, but the stuff is not right in the box. This is a, this is a test for Pete. Was, was Pete paying attention? But last week we talked about birth pains and how there was going to be these growing birth pains and how there was going to be this near and far perspective of what was going to be happening, but that there was going to be these signs and these growing disturbances, but ultimately, um, eventually, they were going to lead up and they were going to get more intense until Christ did come back, finally. And so here on your timeline, uh, Jesus then in verses 12 through 19 of chapter 21 talks about a persecution. He says this phrase, but before all these things. So during this time where there's these growing dis disturbances and all these things happening during this time of tribulation, he points to the apostles that he's speaking to directly. He says, but before all this happens, you will face persecution. And so we see that on the timeline as well. Persecution of the apostles. Then the uh, temple is destroyed, which starts off this time of the Gentiles. And during this time of tribulation, again, famine and wars and nations raging against nations. But in our passage this morning, then, we see that he now looks ahead at the end of that time of tribulation, and he points to the signs that are going to come and intensify just preceding the second coming of Christ. We see, see here on the timeline this little dash that says, the sign of the sun, moon, stars, and nations that comes just before the return of Christ. And so this is what Luke is laying out for us of what Jesus said there in Luke 21. If you start in the Old Testament and begin reading the prophetic literature, if you start reading it, you don't have to go to just a certain portion of the scriptures to get prophecy. It's all throughout it. Since the fall of man, everything is pointing us back to, uh, pointing us ahead to this time where Jesus was going to come and, and, and God was going to send his son to be the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. He was going to offer his life and have the ability, because he was fully God and fully man, to pay for all of our sins. The sins that cause us to not have a relationship with God. The sins that we cannot overcome, that we cannot do away with. And yet there was coming one, the Messiah, the King of Kings, that was going to be able to offer his life in place of ours to pay for the sins of all mankind forever, all sins, past, present, and future, and then extend to us freely a gift of salvation through belief. 
And then we look forward to the day where he's going to come back and he's going to set up this kingdom once and for all. We're in, the, in this time now. We're waiting. But throughout scriptures, there's been times where as they pointed ahead to things that were going to happen, the scriptures, uh, all these biblical prophecies had with them, alongside them, these signs, descriptions of visible events or miracles that were going to take place that were going to verify that this actually was what Jesus or God was talking about through the prophets or through God the Son himself. The purpose of these signs was to draw our attention, to be able to go, okay, there's a sign. Okay, what was said when this happens, what am I supposed to be happening? What, what am I supposed to be anticipating? Or what is just happened? I don't want to miss these things. But throughout the scriptures, the authors tell us that there were many signs that have come and gone that man has either failed to see because his focus is in the wrong place, or he has willfully chosen to reject that and come up with a man-made explanation for why that's happened. But nevertheless, throughout scriptures, the signs are plain to see. And God in his great love and mercy has made them plain for us to see. He has told us what's going to come. He is calling out to a people saying, repent, turn from your sins, place your faith in the gospel, be saved. And man has a choice then to either reject those signs or to accept them and respond in faith. So in verse 25, we read of scary signs. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and turn over this last box for this time. You know, we, we believe that uh, these are going to be celestial signs, things that are going to take place in the air that the entire world is going to see. They're going to be visible to all. And these events are going to be significant because they're going to have a violent impact on the world. They're going to impact the conditions here on earth. And these will lead to dismay or anxiety as these things start to happen and as man looks into the sky and sees things happen. And, and I just have three little globes here that are, are designed to indicate just different things, things that we don't, it, it, we look up at, at, the, at the, the moon and it says in Matthew's account that the moon is not going to shed forth light and the sun's going to go dark and stars are going to begin to fall. Stars going to begin to fall. We're going to look up in the air. We're going to see things that are obviously not right, things that are going to immediately cause us concern. And as they happen, it says that the world is going to be at that time in dismay, perplexity. You know, we know it doesn't take much for uh, chaos and fear to enter into our culture. <laughs> Don't you love it when God sets up an illustration for your sermon? <laughs> I'm going to go back just a calendar year before we get to the water situation. You guys remember the eclipse? You remember the, the fear of that there wasn't going to be any food? We were not going to have any way to communicate. There was going to be gridlock. People were literally going to be rummaging through your cabinets looking for food and helping themselves to whatever was going to be here because this mass of people was going to be on our, in our city. And 
we had a lot of fear, right? I remember us talking about here at the church, what were we going to do? Some people were like, oh, I wasn't afraid. Those are the same people that had a generator but weren't afraid of Y2K. Uh, you know, oh yeah, I wasn't afraid. I was just preparing. You know, you need a generator that big, you know, to power all of Salem. But, uh, <laughs> you know, some people were really freaked out about the eclipse. They were, they were worried. There was concern. Would I be able to get those things that I need to be able to uh, avoid suffering during the eclipse? But that came and went and we had a lot of leftover food. <laughs> but even this week, right, the, the, the news that there was some um, contamination in our water, and I mean, aren't we thankful when, that we can live in a country where most of the time we can have confidence that our water is clean and that we can drink it without getting sick? But that happens, and there was panic, right? I, I remember seeing all over social media and in the stores, people coming, and, 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 and there's a, a lot of water in people's houses right now. <laughs> and th- but there was panic, and for good reason, right? Because water is an essential thing. And our water supply gets messed with, and we start to worry. Are we gonna, what are we going to drink? We understand. Um, I, I was talking to my wife this week, though. I wonder how many, because, you know, doctors are saying we don't drink enough water. And I was wondering if the people that bought, like, 50 pallets worth of water, and they've only used a couple of bottles this week, are realizing how little water they drink, and maybe it's been good for them to go, I need to drink more water. I, I don't really drink water as much as I thought I would need it. But the reality is there are people studying the reality of things that could happen in the skies, things that could happen with the moon and with the the sun and with stars that if it does take place could have catastrophic impacts to our world. Non-believers, a study back in 2008 by the National Academy of Sciences, uh, they they released a 132-page study about the potential global impact of a super large solar flare. Uh, Back in 1859, uh, Richard Carrington observed what was believed to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, solar flare that ever had taken place. And at the time, all the communication that they had at that time was telegrams. But it impacted telegram communications at that day. But they're studying the skies, and a solar flare is this little sunburst, this explosion that happens in the sun, and the light comes, and, and something... Can, you know, it has an impact on Earth. And so they've been studying to say what would be the impact of another solar flare like the one in 1859 were to happen today. That event caused severe geomagnetic storm, which disrupted telegraph communication. And had it occurred today, its impact on electrical systems, telecommunications, and commerce would be catastrophic. They said in the just in the ballpark, if it were to come, it would send down this electromagnetic cloud, the storm would head towards Earth, and just from a solar explosion, it would, it would impact, it would put all of our communication, it would kill it all. It would melt power systems, there would be nothing, I mean, it would just start to do this. And, and you might go, well, is that, is that just, you know, in the future? When, well, there's little solar flares that pop up. And there's records of them, and in certain places it'll come and it will fry a power station or it will knock out communication for a little bit. But if there was a solar flare like the one that happened in 1859 today, it would knock out our communication, it would knock out all those types of things. It would cause chaos to the order that we know it. So when Jesus says there's going to be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, there's going to be things where the sun doesn't look right, it's, it's off, and the moon is not doing what it's supposed to be doing, and we're going to start to see the impact here on earth, that, that is not just biblical mysticism, make-believe stuff trying to scare anybody. Jesus is actually saying, this is coming, and it's real. 
And non-believers will even verify that this can happen. Now, they won't give credit to God or they won't let it line up with what Scripture says. But the reality is, uh, these signs are there for us to see. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus refers to these signs as birth pains. And what, what we talked about is how birth pains come as those contractions start. They're the sign that it's getting close to having that baby come into the world. For, for that baby to be born. And just like in birth, as we get closer to the time of that baby, those child, those pains are going to intensify, and they're going to happen more frequently and closer together. And so here, Jesus says, these signs are going to take place, and then he describes what's going to happen. We're going to see shaken nations. It says the earth will be in dismay among the nation and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Men will faint from fear and the expectation of things to come. There's a metaphor here in this passage that we wanted to highlight for you this morning. Uh, we talked about literal is best, right? And so we don't want to force a metaphorical application to prophetic literature. We don't want to say, well, the Bible says this, and we were, and, you know, he meant it literally, but we're taking it and we're going to say, well, that's a metaphor for this, and we're going to change it to maybe make it sound better to us or make it make more sense or be something that we can take in a little bit easier. And so we don't want to force a metaphor or an allegorical application on prophetic literature. But if the author uses a metaphor, we need to recognize it. But here's another thing. We can accept the metaphor in prophetic literature if the author gives it, number one. But number two, it's validated with other uses of that metaphor in Scripture. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. Amen? And so you'll notice here, it says, it gives a a statement about the, the behavior of man in verse 25, and on the earth, dismay among the nations, dismay, this idea of just kind of, uh, of, concern and distress and things are not going well. And then it says, in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves. And then it goes back into another description of man's behavior in verse 26, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world. You see, in the Old Testament, and in, in Isaiah chapter 17 is just one place, and then also ahead in prophetic literature in Revelation chapter 17, roaring seas or waters and waves are a metaphor for nations and people, multitudes and languages. See, when he's saying here, he's giving a sign. When these signs take place, when, when it becomes evident, the, the sun goes dark and the moon no longer sheds light and stars begin falling from the sky, we know there's going to be an impact on how the earth functions and how the order and the, how things work because of those celestial signs. But what he's also pointing to here is there's going to be absolute fear and chaos among man. That there's going to be this roaring of fear and chaos and hostility between nations as the effects of these signs begin to impact earth. As global disasters and issues continue to increase here in our earth today, even. There's constant conflict, worry, and blaming. Who's really responsible for global warming? Solar flares, asteroids, the ozone, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, etc. Arguing, how can we prevent this? How can we know ahead of time? What can we do to, to be ready for it? And who's at fault of it? How are we sabotaging ourselves? There's already fear and roaring and, and blaming with what we see right now, which is just still in the birth pains. These are just little signs that are happening more frequently 
but not to what we see described here that's going to happen in the future. All of these will proceed and point to the return of the Son of Man. Look at verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. They here as collective, all those who are on the earth at that time, all of creation will be able to see this. This won't just take place in some random part of the world where only a certain amount of people will see it. They, the world, will see the Son of Man descending on a cloud, coming in power and glory back to earth. He is going to return in the same way that he left, that we read about in Acts chapter 1. That's what was prophesied, right? This same Jesus will return. But up until this point, all of the signs that we see in the sun, moon, and stars, all of the famines and things that are happening, the raging of nations, the roaring that's taking place, the fear that is captivated and controlling mankind, all of these things have been signs to point us to that he is coming back and there's still time to turn to him. He is coming back and there's still time to place your faith in what he has done. Believe in the gospel for your salvation. These signs are a reminder of his return. But when he does come, as it, he will, certainly, as we read about in verse 27, the time it will respond will be over. The opportunity to respond to the signs will cease. When he comes back, his power and glory are going to be unmistakable. In his book, The End, author Mark Hitchcock, who's one of the leading uh, Christian uh, prophetic experts, describes the second coming of Christ as this. Christ is going to come personally. He is going to be the one that's coming. Literally, visibly, suddenly, dramatically, gloriously, triumphantly, and certainly. Jesus says confidently, but when these things happen. So when Jesus says this in verse 28, but when these things take place, Straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He's saying, it's not a matter of if God decides to do this. He says, when this takes place, you can bank on it. If there is anything that you are placing your hope in, this is the thing to put your hope in. He is coming back. And when these things happen, there's a response for us. And so here's the question for us this morning. How should we as believers respond to the reality of his return? Some weeks, uh, I'm only able to sit into uh, one service, and um, I have the opportunity of just participating in other ministry here on Sunday mornings. And uh, so last week, I was walking across the parking lot, and I was able to talk to a few of you as you were heading out to your cars. And, and I asked you, how, how was the sermon? And a couple of different people said, it was good, but it was scary. I remember one time I was up late, I, I couldn't sleep, and I was just flipping through the channels. I don't have very many channels, but I, I found a, a late night kind of prophetic station, you know, one of those stations where there was somebody behind a desk telling me all the things that were going to take place, or that had already been taking place, and I remember just kind of going, to, like, I, it totally unsettled me, not from the standpoint of, I've got some business to do here with God and get right before him if he's truly going to be coming back this quickly. But it was kind of like, man, I'm like, why am I afraid right now? Like, I was, it made me feel fearful. I think this is a common response when we study end times literature. When we talk about 
the prophecy of the end. Can you relate to that? We believe, but it's still a little bit scary. See, when we hear these signs and we talk about that what's going to take place prior to Christ's second coming, there are two ways that we can respond. Jesus provides a clear contrast between how a believer should respond and how unbelievers will respond when these signs appear. The first is that the nations will faint from fear and the expectation of judgment. As the birth pains intensify, the potential for fear grows rapidly. The nations begin to roar. They begin to crash into one another. They begin to argue and fight and clamor and not be considerate and peaceful. It's, it's everyone for themselves. As, as the nations begin to see these signs, the world begins to become shaken. Chaos is everywhere. And it says those who do not believe are going to be stirred up by what's happening on earth but even some will be fearful at the expectation about what's going to happen. Because see, even if you dismiss what scriptures tell us is going to happen, that, that Christ will return, the Son of Man will come back to earth, and he will judge the living and the dead, he will set up his kingdom. Even if you dismiss that and say, I don't believe what the Bible says about the future, unbelieving man, you still are left with a fear of what happens in the future, what happens when I die, what happens after I die. I think this, this week's water situation is a reminder how easy it is to worry. Just the unexpected loss of drinking water results in a, a fear from the loss of control. Can I, why can't I just turn on and get water whenever I want it? Where can I get it? I don't have control. I can't just go to the store and easily pick up a case of water. They're all out. Where am I going to go? It also created a worry from lack of preparation. Will I have enough? Will I be stuck? I know some of us here in South Salem live on some, some pretty hilly, slopey areas, and so every year when we get snowmageddon, and it's snowmageddon every year, uh, even if it doesn't actually snow, it's still snowmageddon. But there have been times where we'll get snow, and we'll kind of get locked in to places where it's probably just not safe to drive down a sheet of ice to, to go out to the store. And, you know, we start to check our cupboards, and we start to ration our, ourselves maybe because I don't know when I'm going to get to the store next. But as these disasters continue to plague the world, as these signs begin to come a reality, those apart from God are going to have fear. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what all this means. All they know is how it's impacting them, and they are at loss. That's how non-believers will respond according to God's word. But how should the believer respond? I believe this passage is a reminder that we have no need to fear. We, we know he's coming back, but we don't know when that's going to be. But we know that every moment that we talk, we're one moment closer to that return. And we need to be ready. Believers are called here to straighten up in anticipation of redemption. I put in the box here a little lion, little Lego lion here. Can't see it very well. Uh, one sermon I preached, we talked a little bit about fainting goats. There's a goat out there that if you just scare it, startle it, its legs lock up and it falls over and passes out for a few seconds. 
and how most uh, men struggle when we go to a petting zoo with fainting goats, but it says, please do not disturb the goats, not to try to get the goats to faint. But I got to believe if we walked into a petting zoo and we saw the apex predator, the lion standing there, and there was a sign that said, don't mess with the lion, we're not going to mess with the lion. Why? Because that lion's not going to faint. It's going to eat us. <laughs> right? Scripture tells us that believers, those who do what's right, those who follow God, can have a boldness as a lion. Why? Because their confidence is not rooted in themselves. It's not rooted in what they can control. It's rooted in what he is, who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised us. And so as we have this, this promise, this guarantee that he's coming back, as the birth pains intensify and as potential to fear grows rapidly, we should be reminded by these signs that these are just the result. Hey, this is the reminder that he's coming. As birth pains intensify, it's a reminder that the baby's getting close. We're going to get to hold this baby in our arms. It's almost here. Even though it might feel like it at times, labor doesn't last forever. In the same way, life is not going to go on and on and on and on and on with no end, no purpose. Every moment is moving closer to his return in everlasting kingdom. And scripture repeatedly draws our attention to this certainty, the certainty of the return of the king. Listen to some of these statistics. Jesus, his return, the second coming, is explicitly referred to over 1,800 times in the Bible. Out of the 27 New Testament books, 23 of those books mention the second coming of Christ. It was a constant theme. Out of the 260 New Testament chapters that make up the New Testament scriptures, the second coming is referenced 318 times. So on average, more than once a chapter, not that it's in every chapter, but the second coming, we're constantly being pointed ahead. He's coming back. He's coming back. He wins. His kingdom is forever. You're a part of it. You're an heir. You have something that can never be touched or taken away because of who God is and what he's done in his son. Think about this. For every one time that the scriptures prophesied about the first coming of the Son of Man, the birth of Christ, every time in scripture, for every one time that it's referring to the first advent, there are eight times, eight times it's mentioned in reference to the second coming. If you just do a quick study of the statistics, the second coming is not just something that is we hope is true. We're really putting our eggs all in that basket. It is the certainty that the scriptures demand we look at and look towards and keep our eyes fixed on. And if we will fix our eyes on his return, that he's coming back for us, that he's not going to just leave us here to figure it out on our own, we can stand boldly and not cowardly. There is nothing more clearly stated in the Bible than the fact that Jesus is coming back. So when Christ says, hey, when you see these signs, when these things begin, straighten up, get ready, because your redemption is drawing near. He's saying, the rest of the world that doesn't know me, this, these signs, the intensity of these signs, the frequency of these signs that are going to be taking place closer and closer together, people are going to be hiding. They're going to be diving under tables. They're going to be on the ground. They are not going to know what to do. But you, believer, when you see these signs, you're getting excited because that time is coming quickly. You're, st you're straightening up and saying, I'm focused, I'm ready. It's just like a dad saying, 
let's go. I want to see this baby. Come on, I'm ready for it. And then he's usually told to be quiet and get out of there. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on this passage, says this. Listen to this. I thought it was great, so I want to share it with you. When Jesus offered his infinitely worthy blood for us on the cross, he paid the price to release us once and from all and for all from our bondage to sin and death. So you might hear this passage go, your redemption is near. I'm already redeemed. We sing songs of redemption, and that is true. Our sins have been forgiven. Amen? We are an heir. We are a son and child of God. We have an inheritance waiting for us that cannot be touched. It will never fade away. It will never get out of date. It is secure for us because of who Christ is. So how do we understand the sin? This is what Riken goes on to say. But we have not yet received all of the benefits of our redemption. And it is in this sense that our redemption is still drawing near. On the last of all days, when Jesus comes again to judge the world, we will receive every blessing that God has ever had for us. So instead of fear, you and I are to, to not be cowardly. No, we are to be more settled in a day and age where chaos and tribulation and trials and disasters continue to happen around us. They sadden us. They, they can discourage us. They can create hardships on us, but we are not to fear or to worry as those in the fallen, broken world. But no, we become more settled and we straighten up because each moment we are drawing closer to his return. The birth pains are a reminder that he is coming soon. I was thinking about this passage this week and, and, and just asking myself the question, how do I respond to the reality of his, his return, that he's coming back for me, that I'm going to spend forever in eternity, that if I look at, at my existence, my time here on earth is, is just a speck on the existence that I'm going to have, either with him, I'm going to be with him, I hope you're going to be with him too, or I'm going to be apart from him. And I think sometimes it's easy in our world where social media and the news, uh, they, can, they can make us worried. They can say things. They can package things. We can even say things that actually are more upsetting to those who are other believers just by our commentary on disasters and trials and tribulations and disasters. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you believe. But know this. When things go wrong... When sin happens, when disasters take place, don't for a second think that God is holding all things together and he's starting to get a little bit wobbly. It's starting to slip out of his hands and he's trying to bring it back in. No. He's holding all things together. And he's allowing the natural result from a sinful rebellion he, he allows it. He pulls back his control that's preventing from sin to just wrecking this cosmos. And he's letting it show itself, the result of sin. But he's doing so not as a punishment, not to just stick it to us and needle us over a long period of time. He's doing it to remind us that he's coming back and we have only a, a, a short amount of time left to make a decision. He's coming back. Don't wait. He's coming back. This is the reality. This is all going to get judged. This is all going to be dealt with. The signs are not God losing control. They're a reminder to us of the reality of his return. That is how a believer looks at the signs. So let the signs strengthen your confidence in the word. Let's let these things, again, that doesn't mean they're not going to be hard or hard to stomach or hard to watch, 
But, and it's going to be a fight for us to not let them creep in and cause worry and anxiety and dismay. But those are the descriptive words of how the signs and how trials and tribulations that will take place until we are with our Savior forever. That behavior, those mindsets, those responses are the description of those who don't have confidence of what's going to happen. They're not being pointed to the fact that he's coming back for us. So for you and I this morning, believer, our call from this passage is to be ready and have no fear. We have the greatest promise. He is coming back. And so let that promise give us confidence in God's word, confidence in his power to accomplish what he says he's going to do, confidence in his providence that he is going to never leave us or forsake us, and he will give us what we need to endure. And that even if we lose our lives or we live in great hardship, we will have a confidence of knowing that momentary suffering doesn't compare to the everlasting glory that we have in him because of what he did for us on the cross. We are saved. And we need to live like that. And we need to be a settled body in a world of chaos and turmoil and saying, and when they see it, the scriptures, Peter says, when they see what the hope that is in you. When they ask, why can you be so settled when there's all this chaos and there's all this tragedy and there's all this uncertainty? How can you be so settled? It says, be ready to give him an answer with gentleness and respect. It's because Christ died for my sins, was buried and rose again, and he's coming back for me. And that's what I'm putting all of my confidence in. We believers need to stand up and get ready. Our redemption is near. Let's pray. God, we thank you first and foremost, for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried in an earthen tomb, and then to rise victoriously three days later, proving that he wasn't just a man still dead in a grave, but he is God. Father God, thank you for extending the gift of salvation to all who will believe. And I pray this morning, Father, if there is somebody in this room who's hearing about your come, you're coming, your second coming, when you're going to come and you're going to judge the unsaved world, you're going to hold them accountable for their rejection. And they're afraid of that. God, I pray that you would just soften their heart and, and allow them, draw them to respond to the gift of salvation so they can have confidence that that sin that you're going to judge in the future can be dealt with right now and be forgiven through your son's blood. I pray that if, if you are in this room, this morning, and, and you are one that pray and, and believe in the gospel for your salvation. Father God, thank you for extending that gift to us. But for those of us who are saved, God, this world is tumultuous. It's, it is roaring. There is, there is worry. There is fear. But God, I pray that you would allow the believers of Salem Heights Church and the believers in all churches in this world to be those who are focused on your return, not afraid, but every sign reminds them of your soon return. Help us to be courageous because our trust is in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great I am. We pray this in your son's beautiful name. Amen.